You know, one way or another, we're all theologians. We might not really think about it that way. We might not think of ourselves that way. But one way or another, we all have something to say about God. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been listening to uh, the songs. You've been uh, uh, just thinking about the words. And you're sitting here thinking, I don't believe any of that, really. That doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't think I believe God exists. Well, you're a theologian. You've made some statements about God. Maybe, on the other hand, you've been studying for years, and you could write a book like some of those books in our libraries downstairs that are thick and heavy and full of things about theology. As soon as you get into the study of theology, you quickly get into all kinds of different ologies. And you see some of them coming up on, your, uh, on, your, on the screen here. All these names of different uh, branches of theology, some of them that may be immediately obvious what they're talking about. But there's many. And this is one of the things that maybe when you read these things and see these kinds of words, you think, yes, I want to do this. I'm going to quit my job on Monday and I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to go off to college and learn more about these sorts of things. Learn about uh, what all these topics mean and go deep in theology. But one way or another, uh, we are all theologians. And while all these topics up here are worthy of study, they're not what I want to look at today. There's one in particular that I want to look at today, and that's the topic of Christology. One side of theology is the study of Christ and looking at Jesus Christ and who He is. And it's called, appropriately enough, Christology. That should be immediately obvious what it is that we're talking about here. And so I want us to spend a little time this morning here on Palm Sunday doing a little Christology. Just talking about Jesus and what He did and who He was. Because... Some 2,000 years ago or so, something like that anyway, a group of people were heading into Jerusalem. They were headed to Jerusalem and they made some Christological statements. They made some statements about Christ. And so let's read about it here this morning. We're looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? 
The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So here we have an account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And this is a, a, what, what we call the triumphal entry or the time when He comes. <clears throat> he comes into Jerusalem. And He's entering on this colt. And this is a familiar story to us, especially those of us who have been in church for a while. You remember even the Sunday school lessons, the picture of Jesus riding into, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. But notice here, interesting in this, fo- in this story, the focus of this story. Jesus had been around and He had been traveling and He had been preaching. He had been speaking to many people and He had been doing all kinds of miracles along the way. And just before we read in Matthew, just before He enters into Jerusalem, we see He heals a couple of blind men. And it says that uh, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, it says, and Jesus and his disciples were, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So he had been there and he had attracted a large crowd. All of his teaching, the miracles he had been doing had attracted a large crowd. But then the focus zooms in here. The focus narrows and it comes in and this large crowd uh, kind of disappears into the background. But then in chapter 21, we see the, the focus zooms in. It comes in and it's just talking about Jesus and His disciples. And in fact, it zooms right into Jesus and two of His disciples so that it, the story comes in after talking about these other men, the disciples, the crowd, it, it focuses down onto Jesus and His two disciples. The three of them there. And then it, and then it starts to zoom back out. It starts to uh, bring a, a more into the picture. And the disciples as a whole, all of the disciples are brought into the picture. And then it zooms out a little bit more. It zooms out a little bit more and it, 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 it comes and we see a crowd and then it zooms out a little bit more and we see the whole city is impacted by Jesus here. So in this passage, we really see two separate sections as this picture changes around this story. The first, uh, the first passage, the first part of this, is the first section from verses uh, 1 to 7. And it's up on your screen there. And this is just Jesus and His disciples in this account of the three of them and, and this preparation for what's going to happen. Here's Jesus getting ready to go into Jerusalem and he, uh, he interacts with His disciples on the way up to Jerusalem. And this is uh, not really um, just a discussion. But Jesus is preparing for everything that's going to come next. Jesus is setting the stage for what's going to happen. He's just a week away from His crucifixion and His resurrection. And when you read the Gospels carefully, you know and you see that clearly Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what was coming. And He was getting ready for it. He was doing all the things that He needed to do as He was moving towards His crucifixion. So the first thing in this passage is in verses 1 to 3, Jesus tells His disciples to go and to, to get this donkey and her colt and bring them to Him. 
Some suggest that Jesus had gone ahead and made arrangements ahead of time with this person to have this donkey waiting there for him. I'm not sure I, I, I need, I'm not sure I, I, I follow along with that one. It seems more reasonable to simply understand that Jesus knew that this was going to be the case, that he was going to see this, he knew this donkey and her colt were going to be there waiting for him. Jesus had the power to calm storms. Jesus had power to heal the sick and to raise the dead. He had the power to walk on water. Why couldn't He just know that there was a donkey there waiting for Him? He didn't need to go ahead and arrange it. I think, he, I think the story has much more impact when he, he knows that it's there and He just sends the disciples to go and to get this, uh, uh, the donkey. And so He sends His disciples off on this errand and says, go and bring, bring this, this donkey and the colt back to Me. Then verses 4 and 5, um, this is something that only Matthew has. All four Gospels record this story, but only Matthew has this little bit here. Then this, uh, this section where he says this, came to, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. And he, he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is in, in fulfillment of some prophecy and it's probably there uh, after the fact. You know, it doesn't indicate to us that Jesus told anybody that this is what in fact uh, was, is going to happen here. This isn't, uh, these aren't the words of Jesus. This seems to be something that came to the minds probably of Matthew and the disciples after all had taken place and, they th- and when they thought about it. And they took time and reflected on what had happened. Then they came to some realization that actually what happened, we had read about that. We knew that story. And it's one of those things, and I think the disciples are are a lot like me in this case, that, that sometimes when you're in the midst of a situation, you're just wrapped up in that situation and you don't really stop and think about what's what's actually going on here. It's only after, and I think a lot of us are like this, it's only after that we stop and we think, wait a minute. Let me think about that a bit more. Now that whole thing makes sense. And I think those two verses are are there coming uh, after all that had happened. And they could stop and think and say, oh, remember that verse in Zechariah? You know what happened to Jesus? That seems... Like that's a fulfillment of prophecy. And so this verse is there. They understood what was happening. And they bring that focus onto uh, Jesus. Riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey and connecting it back to an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. But then we see the, the story moves on in verses 6 and 7. The disciples finish the job. They went, it says they went and did what Jesus had asked them to do. So they go off, they find this, uh, this donkey, and it says they brought the donkey and the colt, put their cloaks on them, and, uh, and Jesus sat on them. And so this is, uh, uh, this is good. The, the, they, they do what, uh, uh, what, uh, what Jesus has asked. And so now we come to the second section, verses 8 to 11. And this is where the, the, the picture sort of moves out. 
And it's not just Jesus and His disciples anymore. But it talks about a crowd here. It says, a very large crowd. This was not just a few people gathered, but it was a very large crowd here. A crowd already implies a lot of people, doesn't it? When you say there's a crowd of people there, you don't just mean two or three, but you're talking about a large number of people. And then it, it says it's a very large crowd. So it's not just a large crowd, but it's a very large crowd. When you look at other translations, like the King James, it talks about a multitude of people. And I think that maybe better conveys the idea there, is that this is not just a few people, this is a multitude of people. This is a big crowd. And they add a superlative onto it. It's a very large crowd. So there's a lot of people gathered that have come. And they are there. And seeing what Jesus is doing and watching and listening. He's been attracting a crowd. He's been attracting a following for all of His teaching. For all of the time that He has been in ministry on earth, He's been gathering a crowd to Him. They want to hear what He has to say. And you see this crowd, they pay attention to Jesus. They're aware of who He is and what He's doing. And so they gather and they don't just come to watch, but they're participants here. They're participants. It says the very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. That's why we, do we all have our palm branches here. Where's your palm branch? I see a few palm branches out there. You got your palm branches? Okay, we're going to lay them on the road in front of Jesus for Jesus to walk on. That's what they're doing. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. In, uh, in the Gospel of John, John tells us that these were palm branches that the people laid. Uh, and they spread them. They spread their cloaks on the road. As they do this, and as they say the words that you see recorded there for us, they're making some theological statements. They're making some statements about Christ. And that's what I want us to look at here for a couple minutes here to see what are they saying about Jesus? What are they saying about Him? What kind of theological, what kind of Christological statements do they make about Jesus? The first one is that Jesus is King. And they don't actually state this outright. It's kind of implied. They do it with their actions. They take their, their cloaks and their branches, their palm branches, and they lay them on the ground for Jesus to, to, uh, to walk on as He comes into, the, into Jerusalem. Now, if you're, if you're kind of old-fashioned, you might uh, remember uh, one of those uh, chivalrous things that, uh, that guys are supposed to do. You know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if the lady you're with is walking along the sidewalk and there's a dirty puddle that she needs to walk through, you're supposed to take off your coat and lay it on the puddle so she doesn't get her shoes dirty, right? That, that, so we understand this. You know, I'm not sure that that's uh, uh, that that really actually anybody actually ever did that. And uh, my go-to site for this it's called artofmanliness.com. All you men take note of that. Artofmanliness.com. 
It's a great resource if you want to know how to be a chivalrous, fine, uh, upstanding gentleman. Uh, Artofmanliness.com. And it, and it says that, that, that it never seems that, that was, there's a legend about this, that, that, that Sir Walter Raleigh did this for the Queen as, he was passing, as she was passing along. Uh, and, and there's actually no evidence that, that this really happened, nor is there really any evidence that except in movies anybody actually ever did this. But here is a little bit of evidence that it actually happened. That, that they were laying their cloaks for Jesus to walk on. And if you just think about that act of taking off your clothes, putting it on the ground and letting it get trampled, surely that we can see that. Even if we would never do that today, we can see that's a sign of great respect and honor to do that for someone. It shows respect and honor. And there is a precedent even before Jesus of this, uh, of this happening. When we look back in the Old Testament and we look back quickly into 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings... Um, oops, that wasn't the, re- the reference. Um, but it's King Jehu. Sorry, I got the, the reference wrong there. Um, but King Jehu, as he is being crowned, as he is being anointed king, the people lay their cloaks on the ground for him to walk into the coronation ceremony. And so this is actually something kind of biblical as well that they do to honor. It's not, uh, it's not a common practice. But here we see these people who laying their cloaks. And what are they doing? They're saying Jesus is King. They're giving Him, laying down their, their cloaks for the King to walk into Jerusalem on. This is a way of showing honor and respect. It's a way of showing that they are saying Jesus is the King. Then the second thing they say about Jesus is He is the Son of David. And they do. They sing out to Him, Hosanna, which means saves to the Son of David. So they're thinking of Him. Somehow He's going to save them. He is the Son of David. So this ties into Him being a king as well. It identifies Jesus as being a son of David. Now, he's, of course, He's not the direct descendant of David in the sense that He is David's literal son, but He is a descendant. He is in the line of David. And so this is saying something about Him. It's saying something about Jesus. They recognize that His uh, lineage, His heritage goes back to King David. And they tie Jesus into David. That becomes important. Because they want to know that He is going to be a king, that this Jesus is going to be a king to them like King David. And they held on to that idea of King David because in the time of King David and also in the time of David's son Solomon, the nation of Israel was strong. The nation of Israel was controlling that whole part of the world. And, they, and after uh, David and Solomon, the, the nation of Israel never had that kind of power. It never had that kind of impact in society around them and in, the, in their part of the world. And so they were looking forward to David and, say, and, and someone from the line of David coming and restarting that kind of kingdom that would give them that sort of place 
in the ancient Near East, that sort of place in the world. And that was what they were looking forward to, is someone who would come and be a king like David. The third thing they said about Jesus is that He comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not coming in His own human power. He's not like those other teachers, but He's coming with some power and authority of God. If you are given some authority, you come and you, you do and you can act in that person's name or in that, uh, in that name of that authority that's behind you. When a police officer stops you for speeding, they're not just stopping you in their own power and authority, but you know that, that when, when they uh, jump out and when they, when they pull you over, when they come behind you with the lights flashing and the sirens going, you pull over. Why? Because you know that they've got some authority behind them. It's not just this police officer saying, like, stop, you did something wrong. It's because you understand that they've got some authority behind them. They're not coming on their own. They're coming with the full authority of the, the state, of the government behind them. Jesus is not coming into Jerusalem on His own power and His own authority and with His own ideas, but He is coming in the name of the Lord. He is coming with all the power and authority that the Lord has given Him. The people recognized this and acknowledged this in Him. And said, yes, He is coming in the name of the Lord. And then the last thing, this is a question that keeps coming up, is who is this Jesus? And it's, it's here that Jesus actually enters in Jerusalem towards the end of this passage in verse 10. It says, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem... So he's, he's gone into the city. There's a, there's a crowd ahead of him. There's a crowd behind him. They come into the city. And it says the whole city is stirred. Jesus has caused an uproar here in the city. Of course, having this great crowd, this multitude, this large multitude of people with him creates some kind of, uh, of stir in the city, but it causes a whole uprising or agitation in the city. Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? What's going on? Why is this one person causing such an uproar and, and causing the whole city to be agitated? And the crowds, look at how they answer. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They know exactly who He is. They know that He was born in Nazareth. They know His family and they're saying He is a prophet. He is a prophet. So the whole city is stirred and they're looking at this. They're saying Jesus is a king. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is a prophet. There's a great celebration going on here. And the last thing that we see, but that they don't really, but that's not really said in this passage, is that Jesus is the liberator. We talked and we sang some songs about being free, about being set free, and here. This is what they were looking for. This is what the crowd was all excited about. Jesus is going to liberate them. Jesus is going to set them free. And that goes back to the idea of the Son of David. Jesus being the Son of David. He is going to be a king like David. He's going to set them free from the oppression that they felt. 
at this point in time, they are under the rule of the Roman government. They have been for a hundred years or so. And since they returned from Babylon, they have been under, except for a short period of time, they've been under the rule of other people. First the Greek uh, Empire and then the Roman Empire now. And they're looking for someone who's going to rise up and overthrow these uh, oppressors. Overthrow that uh, one who is controlling them. And they're looking for this Son of David to come and bring this kingship back that will restore the nation to their glory. So they were looking for Jesus as the liberator. The one who was going to liberate them from these powers. Unfortunately, He wasn't the kind of liberator that they thought. When you, when you look at the history, you see that Israel didn't actually get that kind of political liberation until 1948. So they suffered under two millennium of oppression, waiting for liberation. And finally, after World War II, they finally got it after waiting for a couple thousands of years. So they were looking, and, and this wasn't even quite this, this long, they had been under oppression for four or five hundred years now, and they were looking forward. They were still anticipating liberation, but it was a political liberation. All these things that they had seen about David were looking forward, or about Jesus, they were looking forward to this one who would come and liberate them. We're all looking for liberation in a way, we all like to be free. Maybe here in Canada, we don't understand in this day and age, we don't understand what it means to be politically oppressed in this kind of way uh, that the the Jews were at this time. We don't don't really understand it. We hear about it happening in the world, but we don't understand it. But we do understand a little bit about freedom. You know, as I was thinking about liberation, I was thinking actually uh, somehow I, I got thinking back to when I got my first driver's license. You know, I was, I was one of those people who was so anxious to drive. I was, I was just, I, it was something I'd look forward to. I was the youngest of four kids, so I all, I'd seen all my, my two brothers and my older sister all learn to drive. And it was something, I, I liked cars, I still do, and I really wanted to drive. So I'd been driving, not on the roads, but I'd been driving on the farm, so I, knew how, I actually knew how to drive. And so as soon as, the day I could get my learner's permit, I went and I got my learner's permit. The very day I could come off my learner's permit, that was my 17th birthday, I still remember it clearly. I went up to the counter and the driving examiner, there as he calls my name, I go up to the counter, he's there, he's singing happy birthday because it's my, it's my birthday, it's my 17th birthday, the very day I could get my, uh, my full license. I was so happy. I passed my test. I was so happy to be free. I could, and and what I do? I drove mom home and then I took the car and I went out driving, right? This story ends happily. Don't worry. I don't get in an accident or anything like that. <laughs> but I was so glad to be out driving on my own, to be liberated from having to, to stay off the roads or having to go out with someone else. And so in little ways, I think we can appreciate being liberated, being free. But the Jews had been, had been oppressed for centuries and they were looking for a political liberator. And there is a problem. There is the problem. 
They were looking for someone who would overthrow the Roman rulers and bring them self-rule. And once they realized that wasn't what Jesus was all about, even a week later, that's why all the crowds abandoned Him. Because here was the Liberator. Here was the One who was coming to bring liberation to us. To bring us freedom. And He's dying on a cross. It looks like He isn't doing what we thought He was going to do. It looks like He's been defeated by the Roman Empire. And so they abandoned Him. Because they had the idea that this was this wasn't the liberation that they were looking for. And so they were disappointed. And yet the crowd was celebrating Jesus. And here on Palm Sunday, it is a day to celebrate Jesus because Jesus is a liberator for us. It's just that He wasn't the liberator that the Jews thought He was going to be, but He did come to liberate. The crowd had it right. They just didn't quite understand what it was that He was liberating them from if they only knew and understood what He was all about, then they would have celebrated even more. And we can, but we can celebrate today. We can celebrate this Palm Sunday. The coming in of Jesus, the, fully, uh, the, the beginning of the full revelation and the full understanding of who Jesus was and what He came to do. And we can be filled with joy. We can lay down our coats. We can lay down our palm branches before the King so that He can celebrate. He can come in and He can fill our celebration. This Son of David, this prophet, the priest, the King, the Savior will come and fill us with the same kind of joy and make us want to celebrate the way that the crowd celebrated as He came into Jerusalem. And so what did He come to liberate us from? He came to liberate us from a, a, a few things. And first we see in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Jesus frees us. He releases us from the law. We don't have to keep the rules, the, the rules that bound the Jews. We don't have that condemnation and guilt that comes from failing to keep those laws. But we can have freedom from them. We've been released from that. So that we can follow the Spirit in our lives. That we can have the Spirit living in us to guide us and help us along the way. <clears throat> so He came to liberate us. To release us from the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Again, a similar idea, but you see this idea of freedom there. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, not the law of the Word, but the law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, giving us life where we don't have to fear death. The Bible tells us that death says, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's not there anymore. We don't have to fear death because we have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that should fill us with a sense of celebration, of hope, and of joy. He came to liberate us from a fear of death and give us hope and eternal life. He came to free us from the fear of sin and the punishment that goes along with that by taking it on Himself. 
taking on the punishment for your sin and for mine. And so we become filled with joy, rejoicing and celebrating in the coming of Jesus because He has liberated us. And one more. It says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, this is Jesus speaking, I have come that, that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give us life and to give us life in the fullest. And certainly that's something that should fill our hearts with joy, that should, uh, we can celebrate and we can rejoice in His coming. Because He has come to give us life. Not death. He's come to give us life and to give us life in the fullest. An abundant life. We celebrate Palm Sunday and we celebrate liberation by the great liberator, Jesus Christ. This is something that we should celebrate. So we can join with the crowd here on Palm Sunday and celebrate the coming of Jesus because He has liberated us. He has set us free. So we've done some theology here this morning. We've done some Christology, thinking about who Jesus is. But how do we respond? What do we do with this? The great question in all theology is, so what? What difference does it make? You know, you spend all these hours studying these things and then in the end, so what? Well, here at this point, we say we should live as though we are free, rejoicing and joyful in our lives, in our walk with God. How do the oppressed feel when they're set free? They're joyful. They're rejoicing. They're singing and they're celebrating. Hey, if our sports team actually wins something, which is unusual, but if it, if it actually wins something, we have a celebration, right? We rejoice. We, we get out. We're dancing in the streets. We're singing. We have parties because we won. How much more should we celebrate because of what Jesus has done? Because of the freedom that He has given to us? Because of the victory He has given to us? Our Christology today is one that Jesus is our liberator. He has given us freedom. Let that sink deeply into our being and be filled with joy that comes from that knowledge of Christ. Christ the liberator. That's our response here on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your coming. We thank You for Jesus and for His coming into Jerusalem celebrated by the crowd praised and honored by them. And Lord, we see the crowd joyful. Help us to have that joy in our hearts because You've come. Your Son has come and set us free. Lord, set us free from sin and death. Given us freedom to walk in the Spirit. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to have joy day by day here on Palm Sunday, but every day. Help us to have that freedom that joy and that celebration in our lives as we celebrate Jesus the Liberator. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.